I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. More than 138,000 people in the United States and 1.4 million people worldwide are struggling with malignant brain tumors. The average five-year survival rate for people with the most common malignant brain tumor, glioblastoma multiform, is less than 5%, and there have been no notable improvements in the last three decades. The Ivy Brain Tumor Center is using phase zero clinical trials to provide individualized treatments to patients with brain tumors. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration introduced phase zero trials in 2004 to address concerns about the slow pace and high cost of drug development. The phase zero trial is used to quickly identify how a drug works in a patient and whether it should be fast-tracked for further development. We spoke to Nader Sanai, director of the Ivy Brain Tumor Center and chief of neurosurgical oncology at the Barrow Neurological Institute about phase zero clinical trials, how they work, and how they're allowing the center to take a precision medicine approach to treating patients with brain tumors. Nader, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. We're going to talk about phase zero clinical trials, precision medicine, and the potential to change outcomes for patients. Let's start with brain tumors. How big a medical problem do they represent today? Well, fortunately, brain tumors are not as common as some of the most common cancers in the world and the United States, including lung cancer, breast cancer, and colon cancer. However, uh, at any given moment in the United States, there's over half a million people dealing with some sort of a brain tumor. Uh, obviously, for many of these tumors, they're aggressive. And so as a consequence, these patients do not often battle it very long compared to people with other cancers. There are not a lot of good treatment options available today. What makes brain tumors difficult to treat? Yeah, that, that is correct. Uh, treatment options are limited for brain tumors. The primary reason for that is, number one, these tumors are located in the brain, and the brain itself is protected from the rest of the body. So whereas it can be easy to get drugs to tumors in other parts of the body, it's very difficult to get drugs into the brain. Secondarily, many of these tumors are very complicated from a biological perspective. So whereas other tumor types can be relatively simple in that one or two or three genetic elements might be abnormal and therefore can be addressed, with brain tumors, it's a much, much larger list and it's constantly shifting. These tumors are generally treated with surgery and then other regimens. Walk us through the treatment options and the progression of treatments that are generally used. Sure. So for many brain tumors that are aggressive or malignant, 
there's no single treatment that's prescribed, but it's a combination like you stated. It almost always begins with surgery. And typically the optimal outcome here is an operation that's maximally aggressive to remove as much of the tumor as safely as possible, but minimal in terms of its morbidity or risk. And after that operation, most patients go on to receive some combination of radiation, which can typically be done over the course of six weeks, and simultaneous chemotherapy. So these three pillars of treatment, surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy, are almost always pursued in any patient with an aggressive brain tumor. We talk about brain tumors, but these are not a, a single disease. In general, what's the prognosis for someone diagnosed with the condition? Well, you're absolutely right. Brain tumors are not a single disease. And in in general, we divide them up into categories depending on where the tumor originated from. The most common malignant brain tumor is uh, something called a glioblastoma. A glioblastoma is a tumor that's coming from the brain tissue itself. And this is unfortunately considered to be the deadliest cancer in humans with over 95% of patients succumbing to the disease. There are other subtypes of brain tumors, including things called meningiomas. These are tumors that come from the lining of the brain, and most of those are fortunately benign. And then another common tumor type are called brain metastases, which are tumors that are coming from elsewhere in the body traveling to the brain. It's in an enormous amount of innovation in cancer therapies, but brain cancer patients have not, in general, benefited from most of this. There's been a limited expansion to the arsenal, but why haven't we seen more concerted drug development efforts targeting brain cancers? Yeah, that's right. Uh, drug development for brain cancer has lagged behind the others. Um, from For most patients today, for example, if you have a melanoma, Uh, This could have been a tumor that 10 years ago was extremely difficult to cure. But today, because of uh, immunotherapy drugs, for example, there are many subtypes of melanomas that are manageable and even curable. Brain cancer really hasn't enjoyed any kind of breakthrough therapy like that. Uh, In the last 30 years, there's only been one drug that's provided any measure of a survival benefit for brain tumor patients or glioblastoma patients in particular. For the industry, it's a challenge on several fronts. Number one, the market is small. For uh, cancers like skin cancer or lung cancer, you're talking about multi-billion dollar markets and many, many patients. Uh, For brain tumors and things like glioblastoma, you're talking about sub-billion dollar markets uh, and far fewer patients. The other element to this is the complexity of the biology meaning how complicated would it be for companies to achieve success? And clearly with brain cancer, uh, it's a higher climb. And then finally, there's also this issue of awareness and advocacy. Uh, For many cancers, there are really powerful and large advocacy groups, a lot of them constituted by patients who are going through it, people who have survived it, caregivers of people who have survived it, And brain cancer just doesn't have that kind of constitution. Most patients with brain cancer succumb to their disease, so they're not around to advocate for themselves and others. 
Well, I'm confident that our listeners will be familiar with phase one, phase two, phase three trials, and even phase four trials. The idea of a phase zero clinical trial may be new to many people. Can you explain what a phase zero trial is? Sure. So as, as many people know, uh, phase one, two, and three trials are very common, and it's a stepwise fashion in developing a drug. A phase one trial is designed to demonstrate if the drug is safe and at what dose. A phase two trial is then to use that safe dose to explore any sort of clinical signals of efficacy. And a phase three is to confirm with a randomized trial that, in fact, there is real definite clinical efficacy associated with treatment. The challenge with brain cancer is that before uh, any of these can be addressed with any real confidence, we have to really first drill down on whether the drug is doing what it's supposed to be doing in the brain tumor. Brain cancers are unique in the sense that for other cancers, it's relatively straightforward to create an animal or laboratory model of the disease. Test your drug there, and if it's promising there, it'll probably be promising in humans. This is how, for example, therapies for lung cancer and skin cancer have been developed, first showing efficacy in animals and then demonstrating the same efficacy in humans. But brain tumors are very difficult to create animal models for. Uh, The brain tumors that exist in animals just don't really look or act like the ones in humans. And so as a consequence, there's never been an animal study that has accurately predicted a clinical trial result for a drug. A phase zero clinical trial is simply an early phase clinical trial designed to answer two questions for the patient. Number one, did the drug get to the tumor as it was intended? And number two, did that drug hit whatever its molecular target is as intended? So these are categories that we call pharmacokinetics for the drug delivery and pharmacodynamics for the target modulation. And a phase zero trial is simply a clinical trial where unlike a phase one, two, or three, where a patient is matched to a drug and and simply takes that drug on faith hoping that it's going to work, a phase zero clinical trial says, okay, this patient is already going to the operating room for some planned operation. Why don't we give this patient a small, small exposure to this experimental drug before that surgery? Not enough to cause a lot of side effects, not even enough to shrink the tumor, but enough so that when the tumor is removed, we can test these pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics and see whether this drug is performing as planned. And the purpose of having a phase zero trial, very simply, is to rapidly screen through new experimental therapy options and decide which ones are delivering on their promise and have potential and should be accelerated in their development, and which other drugs really aren't performing as expected and should be really decelerated or even abandoned completely from development. The Ivy Brain Tumor Center at Barrow Neurological Institute is doing compelling work to expand the therapeutic options for brain tumor patients through the use of these phase zero clinical trials. Can you explain what you do and and what the process is? Sure. So the the Ivy Brain Tumor Center is located, like you said, in Phoenix, Arizona at the Barrow Neurological Institute. We are the largest operative brain tumor center in the United States with over 1,300 brain tumor patients operated on annually. So there's an incredible need and opportunity 
to test experimental therapies here. The Ivy Center itself is a nonprofit, and our mission is very simple, to rapidly screen and investigate new drugs and therapies in brain tumor patients and use the phase zero clinical trial paradigm to determine which ones have definitive evidence of promise and which ones do not. And so the way we engage this mission is by striking a very favorable bargain with our colleagues in the biotech and pharmaceutical and biopharma industries. And we go to them and we say simply, look, you have a drug in your portfolio that we think could have promise for this patient population. This may not be the patient population you intended to develop your drug for, and you may actually perceive that there's some risk to you or cost to explore it in this direction. So we're gonna mitigate those concerns. We will partner with you and we will pay for the, for the study and the clinical trial of the drug ourselves. We will perform the trial ourselves and we will do it rapidly because we have so many patients coming through that we can ask and answer these questions typically in less than a, a single calendar year. And then when the study is done, as long as you allow us to disseminate the information and, and report it to our colleagues and communities, you have all the rights to our data, you get all of our intellectual property rights for the work, and you can do what you will with the data and the study results itself to advance your own objectives. So what we try to do is really tilt the playing field so that it's not quite so challenging for small and large companies to allow their drugs to be developed for brain cancer patients. And of course, for our patients, what this does is it provides them with a portfolio of drugs that have never been tested before in brain cancers. They may have been tested in other cancers and hopefully get them on new therapies that are promising for them. You consider the genetic composition of the patient's tumor to match them to a therapy that would appear to be best suited, but is this a single agent test? What happens if the drug that's selected turns out to be an inappropriate match? Is there anything done to test alternatives? Yeah, that's right. So um, any patient that enters our program you know, is matched to potential clinical trial options simply based on the biology of their tumor. Typically, our clinical trials are not single drugs, but combinations of drugs. But nevertheless, what we do is we try to make a logical connection between that patient's tumor biology and the experimental therapies that are applicable. And then, like you said, we test them. And in patients where that phase zero clinical trial result shows that the drug is in, is performing as intended, then those patients immediately go on to get the drug long-term. But for other patients where the drug is not performing as intended, then we pivot them to another clinical trial or an off-label drug therapy. And the advantage there is, even though this experimental therapy didn't work for them, what we haven't lost is time. And for these patients, that's the most important commodity. For many glioblastoma and brain cancer patients, you have limited bites at the apple in terms of how many clinical trials you can be on. We don't want them on drugs if there's no chance of it working. How are these studies funded, the, the drugs supplied by the, the drug company, but is there cost associated with the study itself that you have to fund in some way? Yeah, that's right. Uh, all of these clinical trials cost 
uh, in terms of time, resources, personnel, expertise, equipment, and we shoulder that burden exclusively ourselves. As you mentioned, we don't ask companies for any funding. This in part is so that it makes it easy for them to proceed with us and in part so that it makes sure that we're not unduly influenced by that funding. But we also know that the healthcare system itself is not designed to shoulder this burden and neither are patients. So we rely very heavily on extramural grants and philanthropy to support the program. Um, currently, we have about $140 million in extramural funding that's dedicated entirely to this program. And so what that lets us do is simply not worry too much about the cost and think more about the clinical and biological potential. If we see an agent or a combination of agents that looks promising and merits investigation, then we pursue it. And we're fortunate enough to have the freedom to do that due to you know, the incredible generosity of, of a variety of external funding sources, the lead funding source being the Ben and Catherine Avi Foundation, which is the single largest nonprofit funder of brain cancer research in the world. As you noted, you're dealing with patients that are really at a loss for time. And their outcomes can be tied very directly to how quickly interventions occur. Negotiations with drug developers can be slow moving. What do you do to streamline the process? And do you need to get FDA sign off as well? That's right. There's a lot of moving parts to starting up early phase clinical trials. And we're fortunate at the Ivy Center to have really created a very independent and vertically oriented system that encompasses all of those various expertises. So the Ivy Center itself has everything from its own independent legal team to negotiate contracts to its own uh, cadre of regulatory specialists, clinical trials infrastructure specialists, even communications, outreach, and business operations. So what this means is we try to make ourselves a very, very easy partner for industry. And in fact, most of our clinical trials uh, have, a cl have a clinical trial contract behind them that was assembled in weeks, not months or years. And as anyone who has done clinical trials can tell you, one of the large, longest pieces of any clinical trial timeline is just the contracting. But we make it quite easy because we control the terms of these contracts and we're able to say to our attorneys, look, we don't want anything here. We're not looking to become a silent partner of this biotech or biopharma. We're not looking for points downstream if the drug gets approved. We simply want the drug and the ability to share the information in a fair way. Everything else can go to the company. And so when you come to the table with those terms, that piece goes very quickly. The same approach is taken with the FDA. Of course, for any clinical trial, we have to have FDA approval. But because we have a dedicated team surrounding this process, it again goes very quickly. We've never had any complications with the FDA in terms of approvals. And in general, uh, things go very smoothly so that when we engage a molecule, it's usually within months that we've enrolled our first patient. And for companies large and small, this is, this is value added. You know, they're looking because of their investors and shareholders to have evidence of progress, you know, on a quarterly basis. 
they want to be able to report to their shareholders the progress they've made. So we're able to give them that, and I think that's part of the reason why uh, we're generally well regarded as a partner within this space. One of the issues with developing drugs for brain tumors is that animal models may be poor predictors of how a drug might behave in a human brain tumor. What information can you derive from a phase zero study that you don't see in animal models? That's right. Animal models can be very, very helpful in cancer research, but for brain cancer, there are some real challenges around it. Phase zero clinical trials really answer a couple questions that animal models uh, have difficulty doing. The first is this issue of the blood-brain barrier, which is that lining around the brain that's designed to keep things out. And the fact is that it's very difficult to recapitulate that kind of blood-brain barrier in an animal in a way that predicts what will happen in the human. So when you see evidence of drug penetration within a human, you know that without any shadow of a doubt, this is how this drug will perform in patients. The same is true with respect to the modulation of targets in human glioblastomas or human brain tumors. Because again, you're not dealing with an animal model, you're dealing with the authentic element. When we see evidence of target modulation in that patient, we know very well that this is exactly what will happen with this drug. And then we even have capabilities of following the evolution of that tumor over time in that patient and better understanding how the genetics and the biology of that tumor is responding to the drug over the long term. You mentioned that the drug developers you work with who provide you drug can get access to the data. Do other researchers have access to the data? Do you publish regularly on your results? We do. We, we, we feel like the, the role of the Ivy Brain Tumor Center and the global community for brain cancer research is to really be a catalyst. We're here to enable everyone around us to do better, not just industry and biopharma, but also tumor biologists and brain tumor investigators. So at every major meeting, you'll see us there. American Society for Clinical Oncology, American Association of Cancer Research, Society for Neuro-Oncology, European Society for Medical Oncology. We're always looking to present our work as quickly as possible and then publish it in peer-reviewed journals with the broadest possible readership. So our job is not to be opaque. We're here to be transparent, to share the data, and especially when we have results on a drug, whether it's positive or negative, either one of those uh, situations can be valuable to investigators. People need to know if the drug that they're studying doesn't have promise, just like they need to know if the drug that they're thinking about studying has a great deal of promise. Have the efforts of the center done anything to expand the pipeline of potential therapies for these conditions? Has success in your clinic led to drug companies pursuing clinical trials in brain cancers? Yeah, the short answer is yes. Our model is to identify drugs that are promising from a pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic standpoint, and then to really encourage and sometimes even facilitate those companies' movement to a randomized study. And that's really what's uh, necessary in our field. 
unfortunately, for many, many years in brain cancer, we've had a lot of uncontrolled phase two studies where due to a variety of reasons, you have a drug that looks promising, and then ultimately when it gets to a randomized study, it fails. So we encourage companies to go directly from you know, PKPD data to some sort of randomization protocol that will give them definitive clinical signal. We've had at least two drug classes and two drug molecules that have moved into randomization. It's still in preparation, so I'm, I can't disclose them yet. However, um, they are for at least two different indications, one being malignant meningioma and the other one being glioblastoma. Can anything be said about how these efforts have changed outcomes for patients or accelerated the development of new therapies? What I would say is that glioblastoma and brain cancer is an extremely heterogeneous disease, which means that from patient to patient, they may have the same type of tumor, but their outcomes can be very different because their biologies are very different. So we, we approach our patients one at a time. And vi the victories we have, you know, they are individual victories, which is how it really should be. We've certainly had patients that have been on experimental therapy for years and are still doing well. Um, that being said, there's a lot of work to do in this space. There's not going to be just one or two effective agents for glioblastoma, for example. There probably needs to be a variety of different permutations and solutions depending upon the subtype that you're dealing with. So we're trying to chip this away one subtype at a time. Nader Sinine, Director of the Ivy Brain Tumor Center and Chief of Neurosurgical Oncology at the Barrow Neurological Institute. Nader, thanks for your time today. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.